Coming up in this exciting episode, Lords versus Commons, Ermin versus Vermin, it's war, and we'll briefly bend our knee to China. Hello, Paul Osborne here. I say here, though, uh, I have actually retreated to the Constitutional Crisis Emergency Bunker, which is reserved for moments of extreme political trauma. Above me, though, back on the surface, hundreds of peers of the realm roam London's streets, searching for something, anything to rebel against. Right now it's tax credits, but who knows what could be next. Maybe a crazy-eyed lord might corner you in a comfortable wine bar when you least expect it. But fear not, our elected representatives are on the case, and I'm confident that soon fragments of tattered ermine will be hanging from the lampposts. Robert Meakin has reacted to this crisis by tucking himself away safely in an equivalent bunker in the north of England. Isn't that right, Robert? That is. What a picture you paint, Paul. I'm, I'm still I'm still sort of worried about what you're saying, to be honest. These, these characters hanging around. Let's explore the, the constitutional crisis that has dragged me down to this bunker. I feel it's the only safe place to be at the moment. Um, so, uh, t- to recap, the House of Lords had a series of votes about tax credits. Now, there was what was called a fatal motion which sounds appalling in any number of ways. Indeed it does. (laughs) Uh, Now, that would have actually struck out the law on tax credits, and that really would have been a constitutional crisis, because the House of Lords isn't meant to do things like that. That was voted down. What they voted for was a delay in introducing it. They kicked it back to the House of Commons, asked them to think again. I rather thought that was what the House of Lords was supposed to do. That is the idea. That was my understanding, back to my politics A-level days, that exactly that the legislation would go to the House of Lords, they would examine it, criticise it, amend it, be opposed to it, heaven forbid, sometimes. I didn't think this counted as a constitutional crisis, to be honest. I thought this was the constitution. Unless the crisis is simply that you're not getting your way all the time. And it's true that the Tories have lost more than half the votes that have gone to the House of Lords since the general election, but they, they don't have a majority there. What it seems to come down to is the Chancellor views this as a finance measure. He says this is part of attempts to repair the deficit, so it's a finance measure, and historically the House of Lords doesn't challenge the elected House on finance measures, on budget measures. Is this a finance measure, or is it benefits reform? Because if it's benefits reform, surely it's up for the House of Lords to, to get in, involved in that. By George Osborne's definition, anything that involves the government ever spending any money on anything ever is a finance measure which nobody can challenge him on. There's a a moral issue to it. There's certainly a political issue to it. So if you go down that road and say it's a finance measure, it's wrong for these to be challenged, I think you're on a very sticky wicket. We're talking about this affecting families up and down the country. You can't just regard that in cold-hearted terms as a finance measure. This is a sort of a rare misstep for George Osborne, who is supposed to be a strategic genius, and yet he didn't see this coming. Uh, He should have realised a few weeks ago, shouldn't he, that he was going to have to give some ground on tax credits. The caricature almost of Osborne being that the scheming political fixer was always one step ahead. You'd you'd imagine he was almost untouchable. It's been a great few weeks for him. He's become favourite to be the next Conservative leader. His own party, of course, got that surprising majority just a few months ago. Everything seemed to have fallen into place with him. The state of the Labour Party being what they are, seemingly at their weakest for a long time. 
you do wonder maybe whether that will all you know encourage the conservatives to be more ruthless than they needed to be in terms of their tax credit measures that they thought they could somehow get away with it as you say now he's coming to a pickle and he's suddenly given Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell the the moral high ground which i have to say they've occupied very comfortably and rather effectively now we can't every single week say hey how did Jeremy Corbyn do this week at PMQs but let's do that one more time i thought calm straight bat, dignified, politely persistent. It was fine. I thought it was it was his best performance. Yet, I think it rather sort of wrong foots the Prime Minister, who obviously would like a little more bish-bash-bosh, which he's used to, which he revels in. And I, th- I thought it was, it, was a, it was a good performance by him. I think he's uh, already, already looks more at ease at the dispatch box. I'd also say that John McDonnell this week handled himself very well. For all the doubters, I would include myself as one of them, when, when I saw the way the Labour leadership was unfolding, I have to say, this week has been a good one for them. To be honest, you could also argue, how could they fail on a week like this when the Tories have got themselves tangled around the throat with tax credits in the way they have? If they couldn't get a decent performance at themselves this week, you'd have to ask real questions. But there's been a, a sizable goal opened, and to be honest, they, they, they've taken their opportunities, so credit to them. I uh, wrote a blog a couple of weeks ago, and this all started kicking off, saying this has the potential to be as damaging to the Conservative Party as the abolition of the 10p tax rate was for Gordon Brown. Maybe not quite as damaging as the poll tax was for Margaret Thatcher, but it's got that potential, because this is something that, unchanged, makes three million of the poorest families poorer by some significant degree as you're trying to convince them that the conservatives are the party of the hard workers and the strivers whatever they do now however they tinker with this which they undoubtedly will tax credits and the conservative party is is now it's poison it's poison for them and it's very difficult to shake that off the 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 majority of the general public now understand this to be morally unfair, and how do you shift that assumption, even if you make it, dare I say, rather fairer? When you talk to some people in the Tory party about this, one of the things that comes back is they keep saying, look, we never expected to have to implement all this. We put, oh, 12 billion in welfare, slash welfare, because we expected someone like Nick Clegg would be standing in the background like last time saying, you're not doing any of that. And and it was kind of like when you, you say you want £15,000 for a car, but you cheerfully sell it for 10 So they announced £12 billion in welfare cuts, thinking, I don't know, maybe we'll get six or something. Suddenly they find themselves in power on their own, having to deliver all these promises that they, frankly, never expected to have to implement. Hoist by their own petard a little bit here. As you say, this is pre-election stuff, where just about every commentator in Christendom thought there was going to be some sort of hung Parliament again, and it's so right, the Conservatives thought they were going to have some bites at their heels, making them compromise. The fact they got that surprise win has put them in this difficult position in the first place. The Liberal Democrats, of course, can now take uh, moral high ground for what it's really worth, saying, of course, well, just you now begin to see what, what our role was in that coalition. You mentioned uh, the Liberal Democrat leader, Tim Fallon. So Tim Farrow. Tim, Tim- Farrow. <laughs> oh, what's his name? Tim Sparrow. I'd forgotten he was even there. He got a question this week at PMQs. I mean, it was remarkable. It was a very good and you know, a good question, very valid, on the fate of refugees, which he has a personal and a very active interest in presently. But I have to say, uh, he asked the question, and Cameron was rather ungracious. The first thing Cameron did was make reference to the lack of Liberal Democrat MPs on the opposing benches. 
which I thought was a little uncharitable and probably a little inappropriate as well, considering the question that uh, Fallon was asking. Fallon, you've got me doing it now. The question that Farron was asking about refugees. Now, we're a little behind the time, but uh, I did want us to... Audrey, always... I won't have that. I, you know, come on. We were well ahead of the curve on tax credits. You were. You were. Let's reflect, though, for a moment on the uh, the visit of the Chinese president, that democracy-loving scamp Xi Jinping. Um, the visit apparently worth forty billion in trade deals, and all it cost was our dignity, according to Steve Hilton, who used to be David Cameron's blue sky thinker. Um, Hilton, Robert, went on Newsnight and said, "This is the most humiliating moment for Britain since we had to go cap in hand to the International Monetary Fund in the nineteen seventies." Was it? I think he's got a point, to be honest. I mean, if, I, I'll go with the pragmatic view very quickly first and say it was an entirely necessary and sensible thing to do in economic terms for this country's economic future. On the flip side, we also did look like that sort of old fashioned English gentleman con merchant who sort of goes to the bar and says, oh, I appear to have left my wallet at home. I don't suppose you could uh, could uh, Give me a brief loan. So there was that there was that element to it that we did look a little bit desperate and we, you know, we wheeled the Queen out, state banquet at Buckingham Palace, all the rest of it. This meant a great deal to us. And we were and we conveniently forget the many hypocrisies and indeed cruelties of the Chinese administration amid all this. I would argue though, at the end of the day, my cynical old head saying this is business, this is pragmatic, and it's something that essentially we need to do in terms of thinking for the future of this country. However unsexy, unglamorous and, dare say, hypocritical it may be. There's an inconsistency in the message here. The government cancelled this prison training contract with Saudi Arabia when we suddenly came to the realisation that Saudi Arabia isn't strictly speaking a democracy or indeed somewhere where women are treated with anything approaching equality. That hasn't stopped us from continuing to provide military assistance to the Saudi government, selling cheerfully selling weapons to the Saudi government. And China, again, we're a little bit conflicted here, aren't we? You know, We can see the possibilities of making vast amounts of money from cozying up to the Chinese. All we have to do is ignore all of those bloggers and human rights campaigners who are languishing in prisons. Yes, exactly. So if we're going to start unravelling the thing, exactly that. We are, I, they do take a blind eye to so many things. You could quite easily put a very, very strong case up with, with several bullet points saying this is why the British government are a bunch of hypocrites. But you say we we we've we've bought into this long ago on many 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 levels. I'm not saying it's right, but it's also the grim reality of where we are. But old Xi Jinping must wonder what all this is about, all this anger and these arguments, because everywhere he goes, all he sees is the sea of happy smiling faces. They're all waving Chinese flags. We all know they're waving them in front of pro democracy protesters or anyone who comes from Tibet. But he he must be much like the Queen thinks every toilet is pristine and smells of paint. Xi Jinping must think the world is just full of happy smiling Chinese people with flags. Absolutely. What a what a lovely sort of state of play to have for him, really. And so wherever he goes, and every every country, just about every politician also seems to love him presently. There's a good reason why. No, he he has a fairly uh, straightforward existence, I think it's fair to say, really. He doesn't have to worry about justifying himself to anyone. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon, to be honest. Well, I, I for one, welcome our human rights dodging overlords. And if they want to put in a, a multi-billion pound takeover bid for this enormously successful podcast. We'll have to go out for an afternoon of shandies and decide what we're going to do. Human rights. Are there too many of them? 
that kind of thing. I could I could carry that off. What are rights? Do we have any rights, really? Are they just imaginary? Let's finally get back to that pitched battle between the Lords and the Commons, which, as far as I'm aware, is still taking place in the streets above this constitutional crisis emergency bunker in which I am hiding. Ooh, you sound like a great Bond villain, I should say. That does sound good, because I can't see you presently. It's working for me, so I'm hoping it's working for the other listeners too. I've got a small stuffed cat, which I'm, which I'm stroking from here in the bunker, just in case it all goes wrong and they need some kind of tough but fair overlord now that xi jinping's gone there's a gap in the market there we do know that the government wants to review the relationship between the commons and the lords we mentioned early the tories are thinking about flooding the upper house with loads of new peers to make sure that they get their way so it set us wondering who could we elevate to the house of lords only just a few weeks ago we had lady moan of bras and self-promotion who do we know who's a prominent conservative with a little bit of stardust who could who could pop up there, pop on the ermine, and do as they're told? Let's be honest. In terms of prominent celebrity Tories, there's not a huge number of them. A lot of them tend to be quiet. But one, of course, who does stand out, who would enjoy the attention, would be one Dame Joan Collins. I respectfully suggest. Absolutely. I was thinking about Lord Peter Stringfellow of Soho. Oh, wait, Collins and Stringfellow. We're away. You see where we're heading with this. I, Rick Wakeman of the prog rock band Yes. Gary Barlow in the 2010 election announced publicly, I might add, there's no one more with it than David Cameron. Yeah, that sounds he could. Frank Lampard, the almost retired footballer, I think he got it. He was honoured this week as well. MBE, CBE, something like that. He could be. He could be a contender. I have one final uh, contribution to offer you. Yeah. I give you Lord David Van Day out of dollar. Oh, now. Oh, you temptress. I want, I want that. that. That would be fantastic. Burger Hawking David stood as a Conservative candidate in 2007 for Brighton and Hove Council. I mean, he didn't win, but he stood. He's got a track record in politics. The man has a contribution to make, definitely. Well, I, I'm looking forward to seeing Lord Van Day and Lord Stringfellow troop through the lobbies to push through tax credit cuts. I can't see that causing any kind of uh, public relations problem at all. We are all done uh, for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Do get in touch on the Twitter details in the show description. And hopefully by the time we return, we'll be able to emerge blinking from the emergency bunker. For the moment, though, from our crisis hole deep below London and the north. Goodbye. <laughs>